This is iUniverse Radio, brought to you by iUniverse, the leading book marketing, editorial services, and supported self-publishing company. iUniverse Radio is your opportunity to hear firsthand from authors about their new books. It's an in-depth discussion about the author's passion about the development of his or her story in their own words. It's an inside look into the characters and the plot and how the story all came together. Here is iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, A Star to Sail Her By, a five-year odyssey of coming of age at sea. And the author is Alex Ellison. And Alex joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, Alex. Hey, good how are to, you? Good to have you with us, 16-year-old Alex, right? That is correct. 16 years old, and he has sailed around the world with his family, a one-year planned sailing journey that turned into five years, more than 25,000 nautical miles, and he has written his memoir, A Star to Sail Her By. Amazing, Alex. My goodness, it's uh, amazing for the professionals, but to think that the family decided to do it. That must have been quite a decision. Tell us about how you as a family, your mom and dad and your younger sister and you, decided to sail around the world. Well, it all um, all started back when we were living in the United States, in Connecticut. We, uh, as a family, didn't think we were seeing enough of each other, and, you know, our lives were all marching past uh, in the fast-paced world, and we decided that we just needed to take a break from that. So my parents thought that a one-year sabbatical would do the trick, and that's how we got going. That would be a one-year adventure on a sailboat. We'd just go down to the Caribbean, explore a little bit, turn back, and come home and pick up our lives in New England. But it, but it was a little different than that, obviously. <laughs> Absolutely. 25,000 uh, nautical miles later. Uh, now, you folks have a 47-foot sloop, The Promise? Yep, that is the boat we made the trip on. And you must be veteran sailors. I would say that uh, after that trip, you're all definitely veteran <laughs> sailors. So. Before you went on the trip, how much experience did you have? Uh pretty minimal. Uh, each summer, my family would go for a few weeks of sailing in the New England area, but nothing significant. I would say that the trip itself was where I learned to sail. Now, how old were you when you started? Eight years old. Eight years old, and your younger sister? She was six at the time. Six, and she has a, a challenge? She does. She is uh, mildly autistic which adds a whole other dimension of complexity to the trip for her. Now, when your mom and dad and, and you and your sister first decided to do this, uh, obviously you had a plan. That is true. And, and that plan was uh, to simply, um, we were going to leave in June of 2003, and we were going to start off in a race, actually. My parents and a couple other sailing friends they knew would sail the boat from New England to Bermuda in the Marion Bermuda race, just because that's a great uh, support system for the first major passage of the boat. And then from Bermuda, we made a thousand mile, 10 day passage to the Caribbean. So that was our plan. That was the plan, uh, but you ended up going a lot further. Uh, tell us some of the things that happened. Well, after about seven months out, we decided that it was uh, just too good to too good to pass up on. Like, uh, I mean, for example, we uh, in the very first week we were out, we uh, we, just, we were sailing um, in this in- incredible storm. It's actually gale force winds and waves breaking over the boat and somehow there was hail in the Caribbean during that and um, we decided that it was just a little too much and after having been out at sea for so long we decided that we'd pull into the nearest harbor which happened to be on the island of St. Vincent and that we go into this harbor called Waliabu 
you can barely see it. It's super foggy, and but we can sort of see the outline of some cliffs as we go in. And as we head into the harbor, this one guy in a boat comes out, little rowboat, and he's like, hi, I'm going to tow you in. So he tows us in. This is a guy in a rowboat towing a 23-ton boat. And we get in, and there's an archway by the entrance of the harbor, and from it there are a couple people hanging. And we go in further and just see a couple old, old, big boats and the, all the buildings are cobblestone and just ancient barrels everywhere. And as we go into checking at customs, we, we ask, what is this? It feels like we just sailed back in time. And they're like, oh, yeah, we just finished uh, filming Pirates of the Caribbean here, but they left the set up. <laughs> Must have been worried for a little bit. <laughs> a little bit. It was pretty concerning. I'll but, bet. Oh, bad. I was getting concerned you telling the story. <laughs> oh, yeah, seeing a few people hanging there, that would get your attention. Yeah, but it was just all sorts of um, funny, sometimes threatening adventures that were really quite enriching to the trip, and that was really why we had to stay out. Well, of course, uh, a real extreme on your trip, you almost died. That is true, and that was uh, a very much unforeseen part of the plot. Um, we were uh, in this uh, one island, Grenada, and we thought it'd be great fun to go swimming in some of the local waterfalls, which were absolutely magnificent, good few hundred feet up, water cascading everywhere, and it seemed like a good idea to go swimming. Unfortunately, the water was contaminated by livestock, and I had to be medically evacuated and spent a few months in the hospital recovering. So, so tropical encephalitis, how do you pronounce that? It was uh, leptospirosis encephalitis. So. Very serious, obviously, disease. Uh, you were there for a prolonged period, uh, but you were able to get well and, of course, return. Where did you catch up with the family? That was, um, this is the, this is definitely part of the plan that we never really saw coming. We, um, by the time I recovered, I was still a little shaky. I mean, nearly dying is something that takes a while to recover from. So we wanted to return to the boat. But given how unstable I was, that was not a good decision. But we didn't want to stay in the United States either, so we settled on moving to an island in the Caribbean for a few years. For a few years? A few years. We spent uh, three years on the island of Nevis. And uh, after three years there, we decided to... Uh, then we picked up the boat, and we crossed, the, crossed most of the Pacific. To where? Uh, the boat ultimately ended up in Australia. Australia. My goodness. Now, you kept a journal through all of this uh, more than five years, and... You thought it would be woven into a book someday. Uh, as you look back on your journal, here you are, eight years of age when you started and 15 when you got back. Uh, when you look at that, how do you see yourself changing? Mainly, I think I see myself changing as I go through the journals. In part of it is just um, just maturing. Like going, you go from uh, handwriting that takes up a a quarter of the page with each line, talking about little fish that I saw, to uh, so, to detailed detailed notes that took up pages for each day. You see, um, really, the sh the biggest change is the shift in focus. It becomes much. I become more sensitive to the places we visited and the events that occurred, and I became a much more in tune with the crew and as a sailor. Because you became a full active crew member. Absolutely. I, you know, um, at the age of eight, there was not a whole lot I could do in the way of being a crew member, but by the time we were crossing the Pacific, I was, we were making several day passages, and I would be the only one awake as we sailed through the night. 
And obviously your mom and dad uh, trusted you and had full confidence in you, so you really had an incredible uh, life-changing experience. Absolutely. It was a huge privilege that my parents would trust trust me to that extent, and it was a really empowering part of the trip to be able to take night shifts like that. Now, your sister's name? is Laura. Laura. Now... She, being younger and also having some special needs, uh, how did your relationship change with her? Well, I would say that she, um, her, her perspective on the trip is a little bit different from mine, but I would say that she, too, really did enjoy it, and, but in a slightly different way. Um, she never participated as a crew member to the same extent, though so our relationship did significantly improve. Like, we went from uh, sort of antagonistic siblings at the start to really being members of a team together by the end. Well, I'm sure all those experiences would bring that together, and I'm sure the two of you share a relationship that you would have never had if you hadn't have done this. It's absolutely true. Like, And living in such close quarters with people... Um, 47 feet for four people, not a lot of room, so no matter how you start off, you sort of don't really have a choice but to learn to become good friends and love them. So, so how, how long would you be out to sea before you would come into a port to get food, water? Uh, the longest we ever went was about oh, 10, 11 days, and that was actually my very first passage from Bermuda to Antigua in the Caribbean. But we had plenty of other trips that were um, four to seven nights long. What would you say are your favorite memories? Give us a few. Favorite memories? Uh, I would have to say that, um, this, although somewhat intre- uh, intrepidating, I would say our sail to the island of Aitutaki in the Pacific is one of my absolute favorites. We, um, and where is that? It's, um, if you looked at that big blue splotch that's the Pacific Ocean on a globe and put your finger right about in the middle, it'd be somewhere around there. So, obviously, far, far away from any major island of, or landmass of any kind. Absolutely. Which is, uh, makes it all the more concerning because as we, uh, sail to this little island, which is probably about I guess maybe five to ten square miles large. We um, we have a tropical storm coming up from the south, and we have um, our engine actually fails as we're sailing in. Which um, so the combination of storm and down hardware made the passage very difficult. As we uh, we actually had to get into the island, which is um, mainly a lagoon, it's an atoll, so you have to get through a coral reef, which is a, pa- a channel that is 40 feet wide for a boat that is 50 feet long. So going through there in a storm with no engine was one of the m- most remarkable feats we ever made as a crew. But that was one of my favorite memories. It sounds like right out of the movies. What about uh, any major storms? Uh, how big did the seas get? Uh, pictures of me when I'm very little, about eight years old, just sitting in the cockpit, and there's just a wall of water behind the boat in the background of the picture. We definitely had waves that were, oh, I don't know if I could accurately put a number on it, but I'd say upwards of 20 feet. You'd be in the trough of the wave and you'd be looking up on either side and just these gigantic slopes of water that are coming a good way up the mast not breaking but these enormous swells and now you're a junior going into my senior year oh you're going into your senior year at phillips exeter academy it's a fancy name for boarding school up in new hampshire New Hampshire before uh, before college, and uh, you're a you're on the varsity crew team there. That's a great experience for you. It is. It's. Uh, I would say that uh, 
by way of maintaining a connection with the water, so, just because they don't really have a sailing team, but this has become my new passion and way of staying connected to the water. Are you going to sail again in the future by yourself or with your family, or do you have plans to make a long voyage again? I would have to say that in general that's a little too far off to really plan, but I have every intention of making my first residence a boat. Not getting an apartment, <laughs> not getting a house, I'm living on a boat. Well, you certainly know how to do it since you were gone for so long. Uh, a five, a, a one-year journey that turned into five years and more than 25,000 nautical miles. Alex Ellison and his book, A Star to Sail By, A Five-Year Odyssey of Coming of Age at Sea. Alex, tell us how to get your book. You can order it from iUniverse.com, uh, Amazon.com, Barnes & Noble, or you could pick it up in your local bookstore. Thank you, Alex. Thanks for being on iUniverse Radio. My pleasure. Thanks. You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages. Get ready for the Not-So-Soccer Mom, Tuesday afternoons at 1 Eastern, noon Central, on Toginat with Jill Hickey. You name it, from politics to pop culture to Jill's search for the perfect bronzer and chicken salad. The Not-So-Soccer Mom will weigh in on it all. The sentence, I have no opinion about that, is one that Jill has never uttered. In the early 90s, Jill finally decided to put her thoughts, opinions, mom advice, love of pop culture, hummus, and Starbucks, working out, cosmetic shopping, and politics into an actual website, and thus, NotSoSoccerMom.com was born. Shortly after her fourth child, a boy, Jerome, now she's really got tons of topics to share with you. This is Laugh Out Loud Funny, and we're not kidding. What's a loud Nebraska girl who lived in Little Rock for many years and now is up in the Northeast doing, chronicling her opinions on everything? The wheels aren't off yet, but it's close. It's the Not-So-Soccer Bomb with Jill Hickey. Tuesday afternoons at 1 Eastern, noon Central on toginet.com. Whether you're four and a half or 100, you can retrain your brain. Learning RX, the radio show, is on toginet.com, Thursday mornings at 8 a.m. Central Time with Martin Kruger. Learning RX programs are quick, they're efficient, they're life changing, and they're permanent. Unlike tutoring, cognitive skills training or brain training targets the root issue causing learning struggles. Time and money spent on chronic tutoring is a clear signal of cognitive skill deficiency. That's where Learning RX comes in. Call today, 903-617-6899, 903-617-6899. Then join us for the show here every Thursday morning at 8 a.m. And take advantage of the power it holds to improve your life. There are so many brain training issues that Learning RX can help you with. It's not a product, it's an experience. So join us for Learning RX, the radio show with Martin Kruger. Thursday mornings at 8 a.m. Central on toginet.com. Welcome back to iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, Windfall Nights. And the author is William Claypool, and Bill joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, Bill. Hello, Steve. It's nice to be with you. Great to have you with us. I'm going to read a couple of things you've written about your book, Windfall Nights. You say this. This entertaining novel tells a story of coming of age and redemption. It's really a story about two college students who have a number of serious personal issues to deal with. It is largely set in a hotel and a bar, and their story becomes even more interesting with the supporting cast all around them and the Vietnam War in front of them. One level, the novel is a simple story of friendship. On another level, it's a story of family loss and of family found. Well, Bill, it sounds complex, and yet we know it's entertaining. It's, a, it's, it's not a big book, so it's a kind of novel that probably fits just about everyone. Why did you write it? Well, these are the themes that are in the book are, to some degree, very close to me in one, one form or another, and I think uh, specifically, the book talks about, uh, has a number of, uh, if you will, bullet point topics. One of them is Notre Dame football. Another is bipolar disease. 
family values and social concerns in the characters. And really, uh, I think an overarching theme at the end is one of, uh, and I think the one the readers will go away with, is one of patriotism uh, and duty. And it's uh, not just duty to country, but also duty to those around you. So what timeline are we talking about? The way the story is constructed, it's, it's told in flashback, and the flashback is triggered by the narrator, and it is in first person, by the narrator uh, on a cruise up the Saigon River into uh, Ho Chi Minh City, currently Ho Chi Minh City. And he has, uh, it triggers memories of, uh, of the last time he was, was there, and the uh, some of the experiences that he had in Saigon 40 years ago when the Vietnam War was at its height. So he's there for fun, but starts thinking about the war. And he starts thinking about the past. And the past is what most of the story is about. It takes him back to when he was a college student and needed to work a full-time job in his, in his uh, last year of college. And when he's at uh, when he's taking this job, he takes uh, he goes and finds a full time job at what could only be described as a second rate hotel, and that's charitable. And at that hotel, he meets uh, another young man about his age, who's the hotel handyman. And through the uh, through the 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 next several weeks, uh, he is able to place this hotel handyman as a former. A uh, former football star who suddenly dropped out of sight, really at the height of uh, of his college football career, and nobody was entirely sure what happened to him. And that's and Thomas. That is Thomas, and uh, the the narrator is Julian, and Julian and Thomas become friends through. I think they both they both recognize some shared vulnerabilities that each of them have in their own life, and as they become friends, their their stories evolve to uh, both jointly and um, and their pasts are are exposed sep- separately to one another, and so I think they become friends and the uh, they develop i think a, a very close relationship both with uh with uh, one another and uh, also thomas's mother who they they see from time to time she is she lives not far from uh, from where these where these fellows work and uh during during the course of the novel, a certain a major event happens uh, towards the end of the novel that causes Thomas to leave town and, in fact, uh, go from uh, from place to place, and eventually uh, he is uh, involved as a, as a serviceman in Vietnam. Now, you call Thomas a gifted yet tormented man. Thomas suffers from uh, a mental disease, and uh, the the reader learns about that during the course of the book. But Thomas has a number of amazing skills in addition to his uh, his athleticism, and and those come out uh, through the course of the story. He's uh, he at the uh, the base of it is a, a gifted musician as well as a remarkable athlete. But he carries a lot of terrible demons around. He does carry this, these baggage, uh, the, these pieces of baggage around with him, and I think is uh, struggles throughout the the book with them, um, going uh, with his ups and downs. And uh, but it, it certainly, I think, has uh, has a that part of the story has a very positive ending, and that Thomas. Uh, seems to, at least as far as we can see, uh, he's either in remission or he's overcome some of these demons. Now, you call it a coming-of-age story. Yes. the I mean, It is a coming-of-age story in the sense that I think uh, every uh, every 
coming of age story, whether it's uh, whether it's Catcher in the Rye or a separate piece or any number of them that you could name, have I think at its core when uh, a major character who has a very large experience, life changing experience that because of the newness to him uh, or her is a very raw experience and really the uh, the importance is extremely heightened in in the book, and I think much of the novel is then uh, centered around some of these things. And I think the 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 coming of age experience that uh, that Julian has and that Thomas has, each of them are are different, but each of them I think feel during this course of of the of this relatively short novel, both of them are tremendously moved in in ways that affect the rest of their life. And they eventually meet up in Vietnam. They the book starts with them uh, with the the narrator reminiscing, and the the narrator was never really a soldier. The narrator was a journalist who would come to Vietnam from time to time. Whereas Thomas had multiple tours in the Marines when he was over there. And they do meet up in Vietnam, in Saigon. And uh, there is, I think, a very poignant moment when the journalist gets a full glimpse of what's important to Thomas, even when he's in country. And, of course, this era of... Vietnam War, all the uh, the civil rights movement at the time, uh, along with what you point out, free love and drugs. Uh, you know, it was a very, very complicated time. There was a lot going on then. That's for that's for sure. And I think it was the the civil rights movement. I think certainly sensitized people of that generation and my generation to. Uh, to look at life in um, in kind of more serious terms, I think, and then Vietnam came along, and that really amped up the seriousness with which people, I think, took took life, particularly in in a way where young folks today can't really appreciate it because of the draft during that time, and the the threat of a draft was really a very major concern for uh, for for draft age young men between uh, the late 60s and early 70s it was quite uh, it, it was it was something of a sobering uh, reality that may or may not await you and counterpointing that was all of the uh, all of the countercultural revolution that was going on with uh, the sex drugs and rock and roll so it was a confusing time for a lot of people, and there are a lot of things going on. And all of us knew someone who was drafted, and all of us knew somebody who was killed. Yeah, there are, uh, I think, you know, with the furor that we have with Iraq and Afghanistan and Libya and the the casualties, and the, and the casualties are, are awful whenever they hit, and I, it's, it's nothing that can, can be minimized. But the, the the staggering loss over there, with uh, an order of magnitude greater number of killed, with over fifty five thousand killed in Vietnam, you, it, it certainly puts things into different perspectives today. It certainly does. You point out Windfall Nights contains several timeless themes. Uh, one, coping with the loss of a parent. The one of the yes, the the narrator has has had. Uh, an experience where he's not only coping with the loss of a parent, but in, um, I think, in a very palpable way, he's coping with the loss of a family, his own. And Thomas also lost a, a parent, a parent that uh, his father that he idolized. And uh, much of the book, I think, at least in Thomas's mind, and this is really a book club question, as to how important the the lingering memory of his father was in dictating his his actions through the rest of his life. 
Another timeless theme being self-sufficient. Yeah, and I think that that's part of this coming-of-age theme. It, uh, at some point, we all realize we're on our own. Uh, for, for some, it happens gradually and softly. For others, it's a, it's a much more abrupt and unpleasant initiation to life. And at least in, in Julian's case, it was certainly Julian the narrator, it was the uh, the the very abrupt uh, realization that he was on his own and living with and being around mental illness. It's uh, it is a uh, a struggle for for people that that have to do that, and I tried to show that in this book the 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 loving, supportive nature of of Thomas's mother, who uh, is well aware of her son's problems, and Thomas himself and those around him who are are very close to him, and those who didn't really quite understand it all, like the narrator during during the time of of uh, their involvement together. And there's the always tough theme of dealing with guilt. Guilt and guilt comes in many ways. I think in this book, and I think it's uh, uh, guilt to to just in a in a very in a very much more obvious way. But I think one of the things that the some of the characters have to do with is guilt of not fulfilling an ideal and really not feeling that they're living up to uh, what others have expected of them. And you also point out that the book has a component of redemption. I think it is redeeming. I think there are, um, there, it's a serious book. Things happen in it that are not necessarily happy. But uh, upon, I guess, upon further reflection, in many ways, they're not necessarily all that sad. They reflect a life well lived, if, if, uh, if too short a life. Well, you make this statement, uh, Julian, of course, in Vietnam, as you've pointed out, has a career as a journalist, and then you say Thomas follows his destiny in a way that Julian will need a lifetime to understand. Thomas is, uh, Thomas is, uh, I guess, a, a Marine's Marine. He he volunteers to do things that... Uh, that others would not be doing. And Thomas uh, is is a hero. Julian doesn't quite understand that early on um, and is still struggling with that as he comes back to Ho Chi Minh City to uh, really turn over his memories of those times. Well, it's a book of reflection, a book of dealing with very real problems, emotional problems, mental problems. Any other concluding thoughts, Bill? No, I think it's a, uh, I think those, that sums it up, Steve. I do think it's a, it will be uh, an enjoyable read. I'm actually, I've had sent it around to uh, a lot of people I know, and in fact, I'm, uh, I think, most heartened by the fact that uh, some Vietnam vets who have read it have, uh, have come to me with some uh, extremely positive feedback. The title of the book, Windfall Nights. The author is William Claypool. Bill, tell Thanks. us how to get your book. The, uh, the standard uh, retail outlets, the e-retail outlets, uh, it's, it is certainly there with Amazon, Barnes & Noble, iUniverse, um, and a whole lot of others. But, um, and you can find out more about me at uh, our website. I am working with some other people, and we have a... Uh, uh, it's called Meadow Lane Press, and Meadow Lane Press does have uh, quite a lot of information about me if people are interested and about my upcoming works. It's, uh, the, the website is uh, meadowlane-press.com. Thanks, Bill. Appreciate you being on iUniverse Radio. Thank you very much, Steve.
You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages. Hi, everybody. This is Pete Six of Beatles and Beyond. Why don't we all come together and hear some of the tracks off the latest Beatles release on this radio station. Yes, why don't you look up the schedules on this radio station and join me and Beatles listeners everywhere to hear these latest releases from the Beatles on Beatles and Beyond with Pete Dix. Girlfriend It is on Toginet. Thursdays at 10 a.m. Eastern, 11 a.m. Central, with your hosts, Patty Wyatt and Lisa Jernigan. This show is your chance to share, learn, laugh, and connect with other women. The girlfriend at principal was born out of loss. Lisa had recently had her mother pass away from cancer, and my mom um, was murdered. A man just walking into a room and started a 23-second shooting spree. I think one of the things we both realized going through those tragedies is that you can be extremely okay and be extremely sad. Check out girlfriended.com. And then be a part of Girlfriended, the radio show, Thursdays at 10 a.m. Eastern, 11 a.m. Central. You know, your boyfriend or, or your husband or whatever, they don't totally understand that emotional side to a woman like another woman does. And I think that's so important just to mm-hmm. have somebody that you go, she gets me. Check out the website, girlfriended.com. Don't miss Girlfriended with Patty Wyatt and Lisa Jernigan, Thursdays at 10 a.m. Eastern, 11 a.m. Central on toginet.com. Welcome back to iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, Dominatrix on Trial, The Bedford versus Canada. And the author, Terry Jean Bedford, joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, Terry Jean. Hello, how are you today? Thank you for having me on. Terry Jean Bedford is one of Canada's most notorious citizens you know her under that name what what name would they know you under terry jean madame de sade madame de sade canada's most famous dominatrix a very well-known public figure let me read a few things you've written uh, about your book terry jean your memoirs my story tells how a future mother and grandmother was neglected and abused as a child and became a prostitute dominatrix, defendant, and finally, plaintiff in a constitutional challenge to Canada's prostitution laws. And we're going to keep this PG-13, we told everybody. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, yes, we are. Tell us about the early beginnings. Uh, Terry Jean obviously uh, started out in poverty. Oh, I was born into abject poverty. <laughs> I was born way up north in Collingwood, Ontario, on a little farm. We didn't have running water. We used an outhouse, uh, a very, uh, very small little farmhouse. Uh, we shared uh, one room, uh, all of us children and our parents. And it was uh, hard times, and uh, my parents were also mixed race. Uh, my mother's white and my father's black. And those times were very hard, and uh, they struggled, uh, but... Uh, I guess um, couldn't keep up the the family uh, the way the children's aid felt it needed to be supported, so we were all separated. And I went to go live in Windsor with a foster family. I um, loved my father dearly, Mr. Bedford, but my mother was very severe and abusive and heavy-handed. I was the second oldest. I have an older brother and a younger sister and brother who were who received preferential treatment. I was the black sheep of the family, and I was uh, be- beaten on a regular basis and uh, called names. And I eventually became quite rebellious and began to run away and act out. And there came a time when I was 12 years old that my mother gave my father the ultimatum, either she goes or I go. So they sent me to live in a private school for girls. And there I uh, 
um, became even more rebellious and started to run away and eventually I was sent to live in group homes throughout uh, Ontario. It became more troubled and hard to handle and the book details some of those troubles and eventually I ended up uh, on the streets at 16. The children's aid could do no more with me and Following that, I had uh, nothing to do and no way to support myself. So I began to hang out at night in, a, in um, coffee shops. And uh, with one coffee shop in particular was frequented after the bars closed by bikers. And so I became, I guess, uh, enamored with uh, their lifestyle and the excitement of the motorcycles and everything. And I wanted to be like the biker chicks. So... I tagged one of them as uh, as my buddy and uh, started uh, venturing into that lifestyle. And unknowingly, uh, <laughs> my life became a living hell. Time went on, I started meeting people who wanted to use and abuse me. And I never really found myself. I was always uh, trying to put shoes on my feet and food in my mouth and clothes on my back, and I never was able to really settle down and go to school or, or learn a trade. And one thing led to another. I was always looking for love in all the wrong places. And as they say in Texas, I've been down a long, dusty trail. <laughs> yes, yes. And so um, the book will detail details uh, all the adversities that I ran into, and uh, the pain, the suffering, and the overcoming of it. And eventually, um, how I became a street prostitute and a drug addict, and eventually overcoming that adversity and to become a madam. I've had three houses as a madam. I've been um, busted on a couple of occasions, and, uh, and I've done time in jail. And in uh, Windsor, I had a house... Uh, I had several girls working for me, and uh, it was uh, most of the girls I took off the street because I felt that they were safer working for me in my establishment. And at one point, I had 18 girls working for me. At the time of my raid, I was uh, charged with uh, eight counts of procuring, eight counts of living off the avails, and running a body house and exercising control. I couldn't face the charges at the time, so I ran away. <laughs> I ran to Vancouver where matters became worse, and I became a crack addict. And I talk about the, what it's like to live on the east side of Vancouver as a crack addict and overcoming that adversity to uh, return back to Windsor and go to jail. I did 15 months for the prostitution charges, and I talk about what it's like to do time in prison for women. And uh, after that, I... Uh, left the the, uh, uh, the Vanier Prison for Women. I tried to get on my feet again, and I, 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 I was employed at a massage parlor for two days that was raided, and I got another charge for being in a body house, and then I kept soldiering on to try to put my life back together. I had nothing. Um, so I went and worked at another massage parlor, uh, it was pretty legitimate, and it was also a tanning salon. And I was there for about a year, and I pay, uh, paid into the uh, taxes and everything. So uh, after the raid, which which happened, that, that was probably my twenty third charge. <laughs> I um, decided that, it, that the massage parlors were enough, and um, I've had enough charges on my record to last a lifetime. Prostitution related charges. But I wasn't ready to give up, and I wasn't ready to go onto the streets, so I decided that I was going to open another house. So I put my plan together, and I executed it, and I opened another house up in Thornhill, which is a very exclusive upscale neighborhood in, in uh, the Toronto area. And uh, I catered exclusively to BDSM clients. There was no sex, nothing that even comes close to the uh, what people would consider as conventional sex. I cater to cross-dressers, um, people who like to be flogged and, and bondage, all, 750 variations on paraphilia, and I probably cater to most of them, uh, except for the ones that are harmful, of course, to both participants. 
Um, the police did a nine-week investigation and found that the, the goings-on in my house, although it wasn't sex, were questionable and described as morbid and obscene. So they um, raided my house, 15 SWAT uh, team, member SWAT team raided my house and assaulted me and then carted off everything I owned. Um, the it finally made it to, uh, to trial, and not only that, but they had a lot of stipulations. I couldn't return to my house. The, the uh, Crown Attorney tried to keep me incarcerated until trial. There was a lot of things, a lot of questionable things that were raised. The excess of the raid, the brutality. You know, it, 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 Winston Churchill once said that... Uh, uh, never yield to force and never get it, give in to the overwhelming might of the enemy during the during the heat of the battle in World War II. And I remember that. And I said to myself, you know what? Something's wrong here, and I'm not pleading guilty no matter what. So when I made it to the first trial, I, I, I didn't even have to get up and make a plea because the judge threw the case out. He said, this case, there's no basis for the charges. Um, but the Crown Attorney turned to me and gave a wink and said, I'm appealing. So they held my belongings in storage locker for another seven years while we appealed after appeal to the Supreme Court of Canada, back to trial, and then they um, disqualified my lawyers. The girls that were charged along with me refused to plead guilty as well. And they were also dragged through every court in the land for uh, several years, and then finally had their charges dropped, but I didn't. One of them was called as a hostile witness, certainly not a witness for the Crown, because everything she told them uh, gave no relevance to their case. There was no sex in the house. No one was forced into sex. The police officers had asked her on several occasions and even offered her up to $900 for sex, and she refused. So they didn't really have much of a witness there. But anyway, all said and done, the judge decided that in the end, the police had every right to take everything out of my house, including my clothing and my furniture, including a $2 chandelier to, bought at the Goodwill for a prop. The police were just acting uh, like good old boys, and Miss Bedford was wasting the court's time. So you, in 2010, though, this all culminated with the country's prostitution's law struck down? Okay. Alan Young, Professor Alan Young from Osgood Hall, um, approached me and asked me if I would like to be part of a challenge to the Constitution laws. And so we um, prepared. It was uh, a long preparation, many, many years of uh, testimony and it, in, in the end, the judge uh, came back with a 131-page decision. In her decision, she explained how uh, these laws were unconstitutional. Court of Appeal has heard the government's appeal. This is how things are right now of Justice Himmel's decision, striking down three provisions in the criminal code as unconstitutional. And those laws are living off the avails, communicating and keeping a common body house. And she found that the laws prevented prostitutes from protecting themselves, and that the laws protect the perpetrators of violence, against, of, of violence against women more than they inhibited violence. So she agreed that the indoor prostitution was safer than street prostitution. However, the government feels it has no, has no authority or has no um, position to uh, protect these women. Uh, these proceedings lasted almost four years with thousands of pages of evidence and many weeks of closed testimonies from dozens of experts and nine days of public argument. And in round two at, two at the appeal court, there was five judges and 32 lawyers in attendance. You want to talk about clogging the courts? The people <laughs> want the parliament to act. The status quo, if the status quo remains intact, Canada will become a laughingstock. Most of the reports indicate that 75% of the people asked, approve of the judge's decision, and the rest are split. So Prime Minister Harper's majority is my majority. The government would like you to believe that the stigmatization that they've created through these bad laws is the norm, but nothing can be worse than the laws we have now. And if prostitution becomes illegal, it will make it even more dangerous and more volatile. 
So we have to ask ourselves why the government feels it has no need to protect these women. But most of all, these women are loving sisters, daughters, nieces, aunties, mothers, and even grandmothers who wouldn't hurt a fly unless it was consensual. And all these women want a decent place to work away from pimps and gangs and organized crime bosses. They need options, and they need it now. So what is the government waiting for? More women to die? Right now, the bad guys are making millions of revenue off these women tax-free. So women can be sluts and give it away for free. As long as you're a whore and not a professional, everything's okay. But the minute one red cent changes hands, that's it for you. Game over. You have no rights and no freedom and no protection. You're dirt. You're non-human, and you get what you deserve. It's far better if you don't require compensation. It's better to be date-raped, assaulted, for dare asking for one red cent. The current laws are dangerous and fall short of what's necessary for our society to respect all life. Well, as one of your supporters said, above all else, your story is really a story about citizenship, a story that you feel is about freedom. Well, I hope that my story will help all Canadians, as I said in the book, to enjoy their freedom of self-expression and that it will help the professionals who make their livelihoods this way, offering fantasy role-play to do it openly and safely. The title of the book, Dominatrix on Trial, The Bedford versus Canada, and the author is Terry Jean Bedford. Terry Jean, tell us how to get your book. Oh, well, it's available online at Amazon.com, or you can go to Chapters and Indigo Bookstore, or you can visit TerryJeanBedford.com. Follow the link. Well, thank you, Terry and, Jean. And follow my blog for the continuing story. Thank you for being on iUniverse Radio. Thank you for having me. And remember, the fight's not over. It's going to be another four years. iUniverse Radio is brought to you by iUniverse, the leading book marketing, editorial services, and supported self-publishing company. iUniverse Radio is produced by Toginet Radio. Radio with a cutting edge.